So, this is the self-development with tactics. Book. So, this episode is going to be all about the lizard brain and also how to change your habits and why certain habits are just so fucking difficult to, to cope with, first of all, and also then to change and especially change. And this is going to be the topic of the video. But more after the intro, as always. And with that being said, hello and welcome back to the next episode of the Self-Development with Tactics podcast. And I'm actually very sorry that I'm so blue. I'm just seeing... I'm actually pretty blue, but, 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 before we even go through the episode or just talk about what I'm gonna talk about today, if you're having a look into the description, there is two links. The first link is for the notes. The notes are basically all the highlights that I'm having in the video. So you're then gonna see in the articles that I have searched up or also found that I'm having certain highlights. These highlights are going to be provided to you in a PDF, which is going to be linked down in the description. It is a download. If you're just watching this video just a year later or whatever, please just search for the date and then you're gonna find it. And or for the title, I'm always gonna include some bit of the title, but I guess since it is actually a Google Drive link, that you could also just be looking looking for something like the lizard brain, even it is not in the title because I think that Google is actually scanning it, you know, and also kind of seeing what is in the PDF and whatnot. So I really believe in that. And maybe even more important also for the podcast listeners, um, there is also a link in the description also to a Google Drive's page or folder or whatever, where you can add background music to the video because I assume and I think that it would make the video way better, but I'm just kind of handicapping my post-production capabilities with or by adding some music to the video itself. Therefore, if you want to have some music, please check out the link and there's going to be like five tracks or six different tracks with different kinds of music. It depends on what you like. So you basically are able to personalize the whole experience with the episode but yeah let's actually move into the the episode you know so as you can see on the left side of the screen i'm only having one article left you know because we are on the harvard business review site and there you're also or always and only having three articles or three i think it is actually articles i think they are just counting it as articles you have three articles if you haven't been subscribed or if you aren't subscribed to um harvard and and or to the business review so it actually costs something then and this is a pretty nice article and a pretty 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 amazing one and it is called getting to the bottom of destructive behaviors by ron karuki and bon karuki i think it's actually karuk or is it karuchi i think it is actually karuchi but i'm not quite sure it should be karuchi if it is italian if it is not it's gonna be something else i don't know and this one is as i said before it's gonna be about just changing behaviors and or it is about the behaviors that's that are really difficult to to change because they're so deeply rooted in our brain that it is just really difficult to do something about them. But it just gives you a, I think it is a four-step guide or something to changing these things and not just to figuring out how you could actually change those things and see which things that you're actually telling yourself, you know, what actually the story behind whatever you're making is. And it's incredibly interesting. But afterwards, we're also going to go through something else. So let's see. Despite well-intentioned efforts, many of us struggle to maintain the new and improved versions of ourselves. Pressures and triggers can cause us to slide back into familiar, tough, unwanted behavior, or though unwanted behavior. Science tells us that change is such an incredible feat. It, requir it requires, or just because, it requires engaging 
two parts of our brain. The front of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is where cognition happens. It is the rational part of our brain that acquires new knowledge and skill. We use this when we are learning how to make a behavioral change. A separate part of the brain, often referred to as the reward system, provides us with motivation or the will to change by releasing dopamine when we do something that feels good. You think of this combination as the will and the way when routine efforts to learn new skills or form new habits fail. It is usually because they are only engaging one of these two areas. But the problem is, and or the fact is, that we need both of them. We need the rational one and we also need the motivation to do something. And I've been then thinking about some some not good behaviors, which is kind of low English, I know, but... <laughs> But I have actually noticed, yes, yes, I'm having food in my face. I do not know what is, it's a root, but I don't actually know what it's called in English. Therefore, I'm just, no, never mind. The thing is, if you're talking about smoking, smoking is definitely about dopamine. You know, it's gonna, there's gonna be some dopamine involved or something, some other hormone that is gonna feel or let you feel good about whatever. I know it's just about the nicotine, you know, that is actually doing that or that is taking the spot of the dopamine there. I'm not quite sure how it is working there with being addicted to some things in general. I would say I'm not really knowledgeable in that space but i think yeah it only engages one part because the rational one and the logical one and the one that is actually smart would actually say no the fuck what you're doing you know it would actually stop you from doing that but you know there is one engaged and it is kind of the motivational one i would say or at least as i'm how i'm thinking about these things so yeah it is it's just fucked up you know it is uh, really fucked up but the most change resistant behaviors add another layer of complexity they are often rooted into formative traumatic experiences that are stored as memories in our amygdala or amygdala or amygdala, however it is actually pronounced, I'm not quite sure about that. And the amygdala is also called the lizard brain, but we're going to talk about that later on. It's probably going to be a relatively long episode, I assume, but I'm not quite sure. This is the part of our brain that senses and triggers emotional responses to threats. While memories live in the past when our amygdala detects danger, in familiar situations we reenact those experiences if they were in the present and respond with self-protective behaviors that can have damaging side effects. When this happens, neither the will, which is the motivation, or the way, which is the cognitive learning, are sufficient to drive change. So it is like it is basically like a story that we are telling ourselves. Something that happened to us, whether it is a trauma, whether it is something else that really formed our our mind in at this point of time. You know, it, it's probably been something that's been in your childhood or something else. I think it could also I think traumas in general, they really can change things because because it is literally a story that has happened and we, that we keep telling ourselves, basically. Because as we see, when something like this happens, and as they say as well, if something like this happens, we are reenacting the whole experience and we are acting according to it, as if it would actually be happening in the present. The funny thing now is, just because I'm thinking about it at this point of time, is that if you're thinking about that, by thinking and believing in some things, you know, or by experiencing a certain situation, we think that a certain thing is right happening at this point of time, even though it is not, you know, such an experience, you know, such a traumatic experience, it is happening. Or at least our mind thinks it is happening at this point of time, but it is not happening at this point of time. And I've been talking about one specific thing just really a lot, which is the fact that if I remember it correctly, I'm not quite sure about that, so please take it with a grain of salt. If we think about some things, you know, if we think about things, then our brain can't really decide whether some Something is a thought or something is reality. And I, I think it is somehow also correlated to that. You know, not, not just in the way it is, not just about being traumatic and whatnot, but it is like the exact same system there. You know, it is the brain and the brain thinks it is actually the truth, it is not the truth or it's reality, but it is not the reality. But we are still acting according to that. 
even though it is not even happening. Just our brain thinks that it is happening, even though it's not, or it is just seeing certain triggers maybe. As a first step, I aim to help them access the deeper narratives shaping their unwanted behaviors. It is an approach I call origin stories. By no means does this method replace long-term therapeutic work. Sometimes it reveals the need for it, but it does provide a safe space for leaders to examine the origins of persistent damaging behaviors and build the awareness that is needed to at least set lasting change in motion. If you or someone you coach has struggled to change chronic destructive behavior, anything from angry outbursts, which is by the way something that I'm having because I'm a fucking aggressive person, to freezing up in high-risk moments to asserting excessive control under stress. Uncovering the origin stories may help you break through and make way where other approaches have failed to. And something that I have to just now say is that I think we all are having some certain behaviors and some certain things that we that we are just doing and we don't actually know why the fuck we are doing them. And I think that just these steps are probably also going to help with that, you know, by just first of all seeing why we are doing certain things because first of all realizing that there is something I think is a really 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 huge step. Thinking about something like that and just searching up something like that and Looking for something like that so that you can actually help yourself is, at my point of view, the first step to actually doing something about it. You know, the, the realization itself. But then understanding what actually is going on is also a pretty huge one since, yeah, I mean, we know what's going on then. And if we know what's going on, we can just do something about it, which just makes sense, you know, that, that we're then just able to do something about it if we know what it is all about. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, process, the process involves four steps. The first one is write down the origin stories or the origin. Yeah, it's actually origin stories. Recall scenes from their formative years or recall scenes from your formative years, usually between the ages of 5 and 20, in which the importance of the behavior in, in question started to appear. The importance of the behavior in question started to appear which is for me as i'm just thinking about it when did i start to be aggressive you know might have been just really really back in 2001 when i was born or just right after it or something clients frequently chose or choose formative scenes involving pain and conflict which tend to show up at the interception of their unwanted behaviors struggle to recall a scene which is something that does not really often happen, but it is commonly, uh, commonly a struggle to pick which one to write about. First, I know you can also do this multiple times, I guess. Multiple stories sometimes unveil patterns that show me how to destruct behavior. Destructive behavior has been reinforced throughout their lives, you know, which is totally something that I think you can also kind of think about. If there are some stories, there's probably going to be certain elements that are just the same. And if you're just seeing certain patterns, and if you're seeing certain things like that, then you're going to be like, well, this is the problem, you know, because you're seeing it over and over and over again. Take the case of my client, Andy, the division president of a global accounting firm. He was a, he was a fable articulate uh, with an infectious energy that earned him high regard. But these positive qualities were counteracted by a defiant needs to be right. Crave the spotlight and take increasingly. One interview told me, Interviewee told me, Andy's a great guy, but he'll never change. He can't listen if you just suggest he's wrong. He'll take nonstop or belittle you until you give in. During a four-day intensive, intensive something, I asked Andy to write down stories from his formative yes. Centered around times he learned that being both right about and central to so many issues became critically important to him. I wanted him to uncover why being wrong on the periphery was threatening to him. My hunch was that Andy 
only felt safe when he was talking and that having his views questioned triggered a sense of inadequacy and shame. The question I told him to try and answer was this, when and how was this behavior learned? So, which is also something that you should maybe be asking yourself as well. And or if you just know somebody that is just really, really, really struggling with that, telling them or asking them this exact question or telling them that they should ask themselves this question um, would actually be a pretty amazing thing, I guess, you know, for them, for their life, for, um, yeah, basically for them. It's amazing. So the second step is identify the inner narrative. The origins of destructive behaviors are almost always attached to well-formed narratives, which are just the stories that we are telling ourselves. The problem there is, did these stories really happen that way? Or are we just remembering them in this particular way? This is a really good question and I know that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the case because we often tend to somehow change reality, at least in our mind and in our brain, to a certain degree. You know, not necessarily to the good, I would say, and not necessarily to the bad, I would say, even though I often kind of feel like it is more to the bad than to the good, but it's like, I don't know, like, it depends, you know, it just depends, I would say. And those serve as templates or biases um, with which we make sense of the world and often manifest in reaction to experiences we faced earlier in life. Unless we rewrite them, we spend our lives recreating conditions that reinforce them subconsciously, which is interesting. But we can't rewrite stories that, that we can't even name. And that's what this step is all about. One of the stories Andy wrote was about the social struggles of changing schools when he was 10. Annie was both a severe stutterer and suffered with ADHD. His new school required him to attend special education classes in the middle of the day when everyone else was at recess. For two years, Annie's daily walk of shame has walk of shame passed yearing peers or cheering peers with a J G J E E R I N G peers to what they call this or the stupid class room. Set the stage for a defiance and shame that would manifest as the behaviors he now couldn't change. Which is, I think, a good point to just say you shouldn't kind of trigger anybody. You shouldn't say something to anybody, you know, something fucked up. You know, of course it is about children there. When you're 10, you're not probably going to think about that unless your parents told you to. But it's it's fucked up, you know, it's really fucked up and really easy to just really fuck up one's life uh, quite incredibly just in a few steps, I would say. Like it's completely completely, completely, completely easy. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Though Andy's IQ was high, his disabilities made him demonstrating his intelligence on standardized tests impossible. Andy learned that to prevent being seen as stu stupid, he needed to be highly likable, articulate, without stuttering and consistently demonstrate how smart he was to others. To him, being smart meant being right. The narrative Andy wrote down was, unless you can prove otherwise, everyone will see how stupid you are. Those years of, rational, of rationalized public shame caused him to conclude he was inadequate, unintelligent and therefore had to adopt sophisticated behaviors to conceal that truth from others. But his abrasive behaviors ended up doing the opposite, pushing people away and replicating his childhood experiences of rejection. Consequently, he had to acquire others' acceptance and admiration using upbeat energy and brilliantly articulated ideas. And he realized he would spend his entire life perfecting a cycle that, while made him feel momentarily safe, yielded the very rejection he sought to escape. The third step, name the need the behavior is serving. This step is about figuring out what the need actually is. You know, why are we doing that? Why is the anchor or what is the anchor that holds troubling behavior in place? Um, 
and what need does it serve? You know, what is it trying to do? Why are we doing something like just being angry? Like I am, why am I angry? What am I trying to do with that? Or what am I trying to do with being angry? You know, how does it help me? Because most often it doesn't really help me. You know, I'm only hurting my fucking self. In terms of I'm punching my fucking desk and it's, it's not gonna be good. You know, even though I kind of have a feeling that it maybe is just strengthening my wrist bones and whatnot, but... <laughs> But never mind, really never mind. <laughs> when I asked Andy to tell me what he ultimately wanted, he said, I want to feel like I belong just by being me. The problem was that he learned early in life that he couldn't be, that he couldn't be both belong and just be me and or just be him. As a result, he chose to connect or concoct, concoct, which means prepare, make, put together and assemble a new version of himself. His unconscious need to reinforce his own belief that he was stupid and unlikable is what made him resistant to change, despite cognitively understanding he should, in fact, change. The problem, as we see now, despite cognitively understanding he, he should, in fact, change, which means even though his rational part of the brain knows that he should be changing, he's not doing that. Maybe it's just because of emotional ones there. Even though they say it's like, or he said, it's just not gonna, or it's evolving another just layer of it. Of, of complexity. But yeah, the fourth step. Choose a new narrative and alternative or alternative behaviors. Once someone has identified the deeper needs that, the, that their traveling behavior serves, no matter how relational they seem, they can begin the process of change. But it will take time. As so many good things, as so many good things, as so many good things just take a lot of fucking time. And I think it is just something that's pretty common that a lot of people are not really thinking about patience and are being patient. Unfortunately, just because a lot of things evolve or involve patience, whether it is building a business, whether it is building a relationship, whether it is building new habits, it just takes a lot of fucking effort, first of all, and a lot of fucking time. And we need to be patient which is something that I need to remind myself on so, so, so often. Might be also one of the reasons why I'm talking about it so, so, so often. Because I also tend to forget about it. Because I also tend to get impatient and be like, well, I've been doing this for more than a year now. Where are my fucking results? There are no results. But yeah, <laughs> that's the story of my life, I guess. <laughs> So what would happen if you really were smart and didn't need to purchase others' approval with your enthusiastic energy or by using your world mastery to appear intelligent? Do you think others would still admire you if you were quiet? Probably. And he says, for his new narrative, and he wrote, I'm like... I am liked, smart, and safe even in silence. The work of learning to embody that narrative will surely take him time, but the direction he needs to go is now clear and he's on his way. And I think it is actually kind of like... It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, it makes sense that you're still going to be smart even though you're silent. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with each and another. You know, only because you're silent doesn't mean that you're dumb. Only that you're just really loud and whatnot doesn't mean that you're smart and or just also the other way around. It's like pretty fucked up and it just really makes sense. And I, I mean, yeah, you know, this is the brain, I guess. You know, this is kind of the function that enabled us to, which is actually part of the, the other article that I found, which is like the function of the part of this or a function from this brain, from this really primitive and old brain, so-called the lizard brain, just because it is also having, or a lizard, lizard brain is also having the exact same things, um, which just makes us pretty quick in certain situations. You know, when something is falling down, grabbing it really quickly 
is going to be uh, just something that some people are able to do, even though they're not thinking about it, you know? They're not thinking about it, but still they're doing it, which is kind of the main thing this brain is doing, kinda, you know? Especially if it is about some some situations where we are feared, where there's anxiety and all those things, you know? Um, which basically made us survive, just really back in the days, but nowadays it's like pretty unnecessary and it's just fucking us up most often. Most often, you know, most often, you know? Unfortunately. Fortunately, we are not really often in the place and really often in the position where we actually also need that brain. Really fortunately. Uh, Maya Angulu said, said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. If you are wrestling with persistent destructive behavior, perhaps it is time to excavate what untold story might be driving it. You will live a far more gratified life and those you lead will be especially grateful. Hopefully, you know, because you put a fucking work into it. A lot of fucking work. So, um, I've actually having three other articles, but it's it's gonna be a long episode, I assume. Maybe we just also go through this one. In 1954, the limbic cortex was described by neuroatomists. Neuroanatomists. Yeah, reading is a real power of mine, I know. <laughs> um, it's the seed of emotion, addiction, mood and lust, lots of other mental and emotional processes. It is very primitive and it is called the lizard brain because the limbic system is about all a lizard has for brain function, which is quite fucked up if you're thinking about it. You know, the, brain, the lizard is probably only going to do some things that are going to be like instinctive, I would say, you know, which is like probably enough for this just animal, I guess. It is in charge of flight, fight, flight, feeding, fear, freezing up and fornication. Which is actually quite a lot of things if you're thinking about it, but we're not actually using it, you know, which is kind of, as I said before, like nowadays it's relatively unnecessary to to have that part of the brain, even though I don't know if it is like, if you're just basically cutting out the limbic system, you're basically going to destroy everything, you know, of course you're going to probably destroy quite a lot of things because it's like the brain and it's very fragile and whatnot, but on the other hand it's like, is there some interactions between all those brain areas? which is something that I'm just not educated in, therefore I also don't know. While seeing a patient this morning, there was a wonderment. Well, this is actually not that, not that, that relevant. So I always tell patients who are in recovery that if they like, if they feel like they are emotionally in a groove, that it is likely they are in trouble. The groove is the uncomfortable place in your limbic brain that gets you into trouble. It is okay to experience the emptiness of life, the pain of the moment and the discomfort of relationships. There is no need to anesthetize the discomfort. Working through it is working through this is the only path to grow and to to growth and so pretty. So it's actually sober and it's kind of the noun of sober I would say, but I don't know how to pronounce it. So all the parts that you're going to see that I'm also not going through are going to be down in the PDF. So if you want to check out the PDF, this time is actually going to be even more detailed than uh, the whole podcast, which is something interesting. And now actually getting to the lizard brain and or kind of the uh, the main mind behind the lizard brain, at least as how I have found it, which is Seth Godin. Once again, I'm again talking about Seth Godin. I know I'm talking a lot about him, but yeah. <laughs> and he's been talking about the lizard brain just so, so, so fucking often, which is kind of one of the reasons why I'm just also willing to talk about it because I believe that it is something that's pretty interesting and pretty also important. Therefore, yeah. So how can I explain the never-ending irrationality of human behavior? 
which is like, as he says also there in the article, we say we want one thing and then we do another. We say we want to be successful, but we sabotage the job interview. We say we want a product to come to market, but we send back the shipping schedule and all those things. These are all the part of the lizard brain. We are all doing some bullshit, probably partly or mainly because of the lizard brain. Or as Stephen Pressfield describes it, the resistance. The resistance is the voice in the back of our head telling us to back off, be careful, go slow and compromise. The resistance is writer's block and putting chitters and every project that ever shipped late because people couldn't stay on the same page long enough to get something out the door. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because the lizard brain told her to, you know, and then it was probably that, you know, because it was driven over. Is this how you say it? I don't even know. The amygdala isn't going away. Your lizard brain is here to stay. The thing is, we can deal with it and we can just be like, well, I'm gonna change some things and fuck off your motherfucking lizard brain. We can just say something like that to our lizard brain. If it is necessarily gonna be just something that's gonna work, if you're just talking to your lizard brain, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, um, we just have to be able to, to cope with it and, and deal with it and um, communicate with it and just using it in all the ways it is meant to be used for, so in all the good ways, and just not let it work when it is just doing some bullshit, I guess. And there's another article, which is going to be the last one for today, and it is also a pretty good one. Actually, also a relatively long one, though. Where the instincts that warn us of danger when it, is, when it lurks reside, actually, this lizard brain is a metaphor for the amygdala, the part of the limbic system which is responsible for processing our emotions. It allows us to react to a threat in an immediate and automatic way without the rest of the brain processing information, thus gaining a split second that has allowed our... I'm sorry. That has allowed our survival for millions of years as I've been talking about it before. Stephen Pressfield calls the phenomenon or phenomenon resistance. In his book, Do the Work, resistance is an active, intelligent, protein, malignant force, tireless, relentless, and inextinguishable, whose sole object is to stop us from becoming our best selves and from achieving our higher goals. Uh, you keep postponing a task, which is like a way to see if the uh, lizard brain is like fucking with you. You keep postponing a task or a project, you're being too self-critic. You get obsessed so much over details that the results are never good enough for you. And you always find some excuses not to do something. Then use all the weapons at our disposal to combat resistance, which is do not judge yourself, accept all ideas, stop making mistakes, have lots of ideas and don't be like, well, these ideas are fucked up. Good and bad, logical and irrational and catch them all. To begin with, you do not know the potential of an idea. We don't know, you know, we don't know. We shouldn't judge it. We really shouldn't fucking judge it, you know. We really shouldn't. Act first, think later. Act and reflect and repeat the process. A work in progress generates a magnetic field that grabs you and pushes you to continue working. Do not be afraid to fail. Failure is just another way to learn. The real failure is not trying. Not trying. Not trying. Really important. The real failure is not trying. This is failure. You know, failure, failure, like, okay, I failed. It's not failure. Failure is not trying. If, if all else fails, remember how the idea was born. What is the reason you wanted to do that? How much do you want it? If, if there is a passion or commitment or not a really important reason behind all this, you're probably wasting your time and you must leave. But if there is a something really significant and important to you, remembering and acknowledging it will help you overcome your lizard brain, which is basically actually also something that I'm subconsciously always doing. 
I'm always like, why did I even start this? You know, why did I actually want to do this? And all those things, which in the end really, 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 really helps me to to do that. And here's now like, just overcome that and still just keep going and whatnot. And then there's also the linchpin manifesto because this um, part of it is actually from Seth Godin's linchpin, are you indispensable? Indispensable. It's actually indispensable. No, I didn't actually know. <laughs> I am an artist. I take initiative. I do the work and not the job. Without critics, there is no art. I am a linchpin and I'm easily replaced. If it's never been done before, even better. The work is personal, too important to phone in. The lizard brain is powerless in effect of arts or in the face of art if you make it happen every day. Every interaction is an opportunity to make a connection. The past is gone, it has no power. The future depends on choices I make now. I own the means of production, the system isn't as important as my contribution to it. I see the essential truth unclouded by worldview and that the truth drives my decisions. I lean into the work, not away from it. Trivial work doesn't require learning. Busy work is too easy, rule-breaking works better and is worth the effort. Energy is contagious. The more I put in, the more the world gives me. It, does, it doesn't matter if I'm always right. It matters that I'm always moving. I raised the bar. I know yesterday's innovation is today's standard. I will not be brainwashed into believing in the status quo. Artists don't care about credit. We care about change. There's no resistance if I don't allow it to defeat me. I embrace a lack of structure to find a new path. I'm surprising and often surprised. I donate energy and risk to the cause and I turn charisma into leadership. The work matters. Go and make something happen. And with that being said, this is actually going to be the end of the episode. And I really have to thank you uh, for being with me. I have really appreciated that. So if you have liked it as well, give me a like. If you're on a YouTube video, or rate the podcast if you're on a podcast. And I would heavily appreciate if you would be subscribing to the podcast and or also to the YouTube channel. I really highly would. Um... How many wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck woodchuck chuck? You know, this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> but yeah, I wish you the best health of feminism and also success. And I also hope that you're going to remind yourself and you're going to be remembered, which basically means your legacy, which basically means just being a nice person and also going to be remembered as a nice person. On the other hand, I'm also having three other questions for you. The first one is, why are you here? The second one is, what are you trying to change? The third one is, what is bothering you the most? These three questions are hopefully going to show you your purpose and maybe even a business idea. Uh, with that being said, I'll hopefully see you the next time. Go and do something fucking great. I'll see you.